when you have, what does the future hold for you? Now, what does the future hold for you? And last weekend, I had a small reunion with a few high school friends of mine. Um, some of these friends uh, I haven't seen in over 20 years. And so it was wonderful to, to catch up. But the one thing I realized as we uh, chatted over lunch was that none of our lives had actually turned out the way that we had planned. Uh, one of my friends was going through a messy divorce. Another one was living the high life, uh, traveling the globe. Uh, I ended up as a Christian minister. You know, when we were in high school, we had all these ideas and all these dreams about the future, but it turns out that the future had other ideas for us. In fact, one of the sad stories we shared uh, was about school principal. Uh, after we graduated from high school, um, this principal retired. And no doubt he and his wife had made grand plans uh, for their life in retirement, and they were looking forward to lots of things. But on the first week of his retirement, uh, he was involved in a serious car accident. He ended up in a coma, and a few months later, So often the future has different ideas for us. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series in the book of James, and uh, I want you to see today, friends, that our passage from God's Word uh, today is all about the future. Uh, in the first part of our passage, you see there that James talks about the person who makes future plans. Uh, in the middle of our passage, James talks about future of those who are godless and rich. And in the final part of our passage, James encourages us as Christian people to live in the light of the future that God has given. But why does James talk about the future here? Well, if you remember, James has been talking about the problem of Christian people being friends with the world. Do you remember that? Our friendship with the world has been the problem. Uh, and friendship with the world is really a problem of short-sightedness, isn't it? For the worldly person is the one who only lives for this present world, this present moment. But the Christian person, says James, is the one who lives with the future in mind. So, Today, uh, James addresses people who like to plan for the future. Uh, you can see it there in chapter 4, verse 13, don't you? Where he says, chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, I will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Uh, who are these people that James is talking to? Well, I think uh, we can see there that he's addressing people who are rich. Uh, you know, today it's quite easy to kind of uproot ourselves and perhaps go to another city and live there for a few years, and then uh, go to another city and live there for a few years, isn't it? But in James' day, 
it was only the rich who had the means to make these sorts of plans for their lives. But about the people he's addressing are merchants. For notice they are planning to go to different towns in order to make a profit. Just imagine how the businessman would have sweet and tired traveling to different cities to open up new markets for his goods. But what's the problem with making these sorts of plans for the future? Well, you can see there in verse 16 that James described these people as arrogant. He said you boast in your arrogance. In other words, they are selfish. In making their plans for the future, all they can think about is themselves and how this will benefit them without any room for God. Now, of course, uh, James is not saying that planning for the future is in itself evil. I mean, it's hard to imagine you know, living in this day of busyness and electronic diaries, uh, not having to plan in some way. If you remember, God Himself is a planner. Uh, he is the one who planned the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, even before the foundation of the world. Uh, in the scriptures, we uh, also see lots of godly people who plan things. The Apostle Paul, for example, plans uh, where he will go next in his missionary journeys. Neither is James saying that it is always wrong to make a profit. It's hard to see how you can within the structures of our world without trying to make a profit in some way. Uh, if you remember in the book of Acts, uh, does anyone remember in the book of Acts um, uh, business people that come up? Anyone tell me the business person that comes up in the book of Acts? Lydia, thank you. Yeah, she was a merchant of purple uh, goods or something like that. It wasn't obviously Obviously, she lived, her, her business was to make a, a profit. And so, uh, the evil that James identifies here is not planning for the future, per se, nor that of making a profit. Rather, it is the problem of thinking so highly of yourself that you make plans for the future in a selfish way without any regard for God and others around you. Selfish and arrogant, and all your plans for your life revolve around yourself with little or no thought of God. Notice that James says that you can't even control your life. Uh, in verse 14, he says, Yet you do not know what even tomorrow will bring. You might plan for things for your future, but in many ways, your future and my future is not within our control. Further, James says, you and I are 
here again in verse 14 of chapter 2 says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, imagine something with me. Um, if you had the means to write an autobiography of your life, uh, what would you title it? If you had the means to write an autobiography of your life, what do you think you would title it as well? Working hard for the good. Or would you call it rising up the corporate ladder? Or would you call it my life in food and travel? You know what Dennis would call it? He would call it turn the fan on and you see how beautiful it is. You know the mist that you get on, on your car windscreen on a cold day? As soon as you turn on the demister, it disappears, doesn't it? That's your life. That's my life. We are here one day and gone tomorrow. Now let me ask you another question. Now put up your hand if you know the name of your great grandfather. that your plans 
according to God's plans for his people. Particularly when we look at that being the Lord of Almighty and Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Now, I've met so many Christian people who make big decisions in their lives, whether it's where they live, or what they go to take, or who to marry, or what to purchase, or what they're going to do next with life. But when I ask them how God fits into that picture, many people can't answer that question. Because it's obvious that they haven't considered God's will for them as they've made all these plans and decisions. But when I ask them, how will this decision um, help you to grow in your godliness or how will this decision give you more opportunities to tell other people the gospel? Or how is this decision a loving one for those around you? How will it affect those people around you? And sadly, many times it's obvious that God is not in the picture, and what is really driving these decisions is just selfishness, with other people in the church, how refreshing it was to hear from Beverly about how he sought the wisdom of others as he planned their lives. No real consideration of how their decisions will affect others in their lives. I know that's not everything, but it has to be this way. Because what God will say to them is you need to see just how valuable
want you to notice that James switches from addressing arrogant Christians who make their plans without considering God's will to next addressing weak non-Christians. Addressing rich non-Christian people. Now you can see that they are rich because in chapter 5 verse 1 they are explicitly described as being rich. But they are also non-Christians it's because of the way James describes the future of these people. And so, for example, chapter 5, verse 1, James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Or have a look down at verse 5, where James says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. It's hard to imagine James to describe the future of God's people in this way. Now, this is talking about the future of the godless person, the non-Christian person, who will one day face uh, God's condemnation of them in the day of judgment. Further, notice that the people James addresses here seem to be landowners, and uh, more specifically, landowners who are corrupt. So uh, in verse 4, James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord's, of the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, these people seem to be the same rich people uh, who we met in chapter 2 here. Uh, the rich pagan were persecuting uh, the poor Christian people that James is writing to. But why would these rich non-Christian people be condemned? Why would they be uh, face misery and slaughter on the day of judgment? Well, you can see there that it's because they have used their lives to hoard their riches.
some of you might have heard the name John Wesley. Uh, he was an English minister who started the Methodist movement. Uh, but what many people don't know about John Wesley is that uh, he made enormous sums of money during his, his time from uh, his preaching and uh, the books that he published. Uh, one biographer estimates that during his lifetime, he made $50 million from his work. But when Wesley died, um, he died with only $20 in his pocket. Because he had given it all away. In fact, during his lifetime, uh, it's recorded that the tax office who treated him fairly because they just couldn't believe the kind of crop he was giving even though they could see it. Now, my suggestion, therefore, that Christians ought not to save for the future or to have retirement plans, uh, well, of course not. But it is to say that in God's eyes, to hoard our wealth at the neglect of God's will, whether that be the work of the gospel or the care of the needy in this world, is to be no different to the non-Christian person whose aim in life is to have comfortable retirement with a large enough nest egg to travel the world to leave a sizable uh, inheritance to the grandchildren. But you know, friends, uh, it used to be common practice for Christian people to leave substantial sums of money in their will towards the work of the gospel. It still happens, but it happens less and less because uh, I think Christians have started to think in a very worldly way about their money. And many Christians simply leave their inheritance largely to other family members who, if we're honest, will simply use the money for luxury and self-indulgence. But I wonder whether we need to revive this practice again person who is serious about doing God's will is the one who will use their wealth, riches, and money, not for hoarding and luxury and self-indulgence, but will be the ones who are concerned about God's will and focus on God's gospel. And this, I think, every one of us can do. Friends, why does James address non-Christian people in this way? Why does he speak to the godless rich here? Well, it's not because he thinks that these people will hear the things that he is saying. It's not because he thinks that this letter will be taken around and read to non-Christian people. Uh, But I think it's because James wants Christian people like us to overhear what he wants to say to non-Christians. Uh, you know, if you are a Christian person and you know that the future of the godless rich is one of humiliation before God on the day of judgment, then you will think twice about, about being jealous of that future of the rich, whose lives seem so easy at this present moment in time. Or if you are a Christian person and you are facing difficulty 
persecution from work colleagues or family members who were put to face. And we know that the center of the Bible's reach is God opposed to God and his ways will be one of humiliation. Whereas your future will be one of exaltation on the day of judgment. But it's a great encouragement to persevere and to wait patiently for God to act some of you might know that I support an English football team called uh, Arsenal. Uh, unfortunately, they don't win many matches. And so, uh, the way I watch football these days is to record the game. And only if Arsenal wins will I watch that game uh, as, a, as a replay from beginning to end. It's such a wonderful way to watch sport.
is not one of power, but it's suffering and loss. And as we read in the Old Testament reading today, God's last word on Mary's life was one of comfort, blessing, and blessed her with a hundred Friends, I don't know what kind of suffering that you are all going through at the moment. Um, some of you are going through sickness or grief. Help us to plan and organize our lives, not around. 